Hello, it's Dr. Deanne Ross here. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. It is titled Nature is Speaking, but there is a deafening silence. This is another theme of how I think about what the love theory needs to address. And of course, if you haven't heard my other podcast, I'm the love theorist. So my whole preoccupation at the moment is understanding um, and what might be needed to be included in a theory of love that is relevant for humans in how we interact with each other in all sorts of circumstances, but also relevant for other species, um, all animate and sentient beings, in particular Mother Nature, of whom we are not separate, and also obviously the environment as part of that. Uh, so it's kind of multi-dimensional theory and up until now, I've given an example of a problematic of violence that is human-to-human violence in the form of seclusion and restraint of people who are subjected to the Mental Health Act against their wishes um, and are treated um, by being placed in seclusion at times. So I wanted, while I'm prepared, I'm actually in the minute um, preparing some really amazing conversations with people who in their everyday work world uh, use the idea of love and what it means to them to guide them in how they they practice and how they are in the world. While I'm preparing that, I thought I'd really like to make a contribution um, with another podcast, this time focusing on Mother Nature and the environment. And, of course, it's an enormous topic. And as with the preceding example of seclusion and restraint, I've I've kind of had to focus on my experience and my relationship with Mother Nature from when I was a child growing up and into my professional life and my adult life more broadly. And and so it it doesn't tell a story about everything that is um, being done to Mother Nature, the environment, but it gives um, you a sensibility at least of how I've experienced my relationship with the environment and what I've borne witness to and how that's affected my thinking at this time on developing a theory of love, which necessarily must include um, a way of being with, understanding, listening to Mother Nature um, so that we can turn the tide of the devastating exploitation that is happening of nature and the environment no matter what the reasons, and we might say there are many good reasons. So, yeah, the human distress caused by people towards other people has obviously preoccupied most of my adult life, my professional working life as a social worker, Um, and yet all entwined and not separate from that focus and commitment, um, nature, the environment has been incredibly important to sustaining me, um, not only at times contributing to my brokenheartedness for what I see happening, um, but but has sustained me and given me strength and and resilience and hope for the world. So it's a bit of an unusual sense of gaining my strength, perspective, um, life actually from Mother Nature, even, even as we have all, in different ways, have concerns about what is happening. 
so that when I lend my mind and heart to the, what is really a parallel trauma of what's happening to people, um, to think about what's happening to Mother Nature, we, I see her being objectified, made a thing that can be exploited and used as a commodity um, and in a capitalist society uh, like Australia. Uh, she is treated like a commodity. Aspects of who she is are separated, fragmented, treated like a commodity to be traded to the highest or most powerful bidder. It's so threatening and so disheartening, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. And I read inspiring writers um, like Simard of 2022, who believes trees are people. I just find that so uplifting. Of course, this White people were slow, are slow to come to this understanding of trees and their place in our lives and who they are. But I did find her work um, particularly interesting. I think I've mentioned it before. Uh, to mention Anne Polina, Professor Anne Polina, who I've also acknowledged before, who believes the river is her life and, and the river is a living relative. And, you know, just yesterday, part of my work at the moment as, a, as an academic is that I get to chair or be include, involved in some way with um, doctoral students on, on their um, stepping stones of what they need to do to get their PhD. And there was this amazing um, HDL student yesterday who was talking about how she's undertaking research which is basically uh, all focused on her relationship with some rivers um, and learning and listening from rivers to build new knowledge for white people in particular uh, to be more sensitive to and less brushless to destroy such important parts of our world, basically. So, like, there are people doing wonderful things and it does it is inspiring it is uplifting it gives us hope uh, that we can learn better how to listen with and be with mother nature and not harm her so you know like uh, so those those kind of moments of hope and inspiration are precious and i i really acknowledge the people i've just mentioned then i go to my local schoolyard um, in uh, when i'm taking my dogs for a walk one morning and I, I just gasp with despair because there's a gathering of fairly a small gathering on the edge of an oval where I was walking of old trees um, and how shocking for the trees to be cut down without warning after many years of being safe, you would think, in a school ground. How were the children prepared for this? I wonder, like, like just is it okay that this machinery just comes in and just chops these big trees down? I've seen um, evidence of children having played in and around the trees. They, they built forts and they've got cubby houses. So how did that happen? How And I don't know the inside story of why that decision was made. Um, there were signs everywhere, as I say, of children playing under the trees and around the trees. Shade from the trees was a rock on respite in the heat in summer. When I was walking, the dogs are always tucked in around under the trees because it just helped give us a little bit of a breathing space from the sun pelting down on us. The first time I saw the falling trees, you know, their, their stumps were still in the ground but just cut off um, above the ground and the whole area was was in turmoil from the heavy machinery that had gone in. Um, the next time, though, the small area looked like it had been attacked by a bulldozer, as I was saying, and uh, the stumps were clearly not coming out easily. Um, but some had, and they were just strewn all over the area. 
our pathway um, my dogs and I were walking alongside the trees was no longer possible. It was all, all closed off by um, fencing, temporary fencing. And it just really disappeared for the moment, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you know, some more trees gone. It's a loss for the birds, the insects, snakes and lizards that we have seen there who live in the space. And really more troubling for me is what, what does this teach young, young people about what is okay and what not to mind and talk about or think about? Um, do they just go play somewhere else with the trees in the way, really? It is knowing for me that, that this is a little loss, obviously, but what, what, is, what is troubling is that we know that little losses like this are happening in neighbourhoods and cities and rural locales all over Australia and other countries and actually collectively comprise what I see as a continuing assault on Mother Nature's ability to hold hills and soils in place, to keep areas cooler, to produce clean air to breathe, and, and to provide shelter and food for other animals. I know millions of people really care and love, care about and love trees. I know it could be worse, but really it is already seriously worrying. Um, and if you look at recent reports on the loss of biodiversity in Australia, it is very troubling, such that every tree matters. And us, the koalas, whose survival as a species is under threat, due to habitat destruction for new suburbs. So then, a most devastating thing happened. As you might imagine, I live in a place that has quite a few trees. Some of them up fairly close to the house, and um, all, all of what you maybe think is not a good idea, but actually the trees were here first. Um, nevertheless, the, tr the tragedy happened in my own backyard. Uh, let me let me begin by introducing someone whom I regard to regarded um, and still regard as a mother of all the trees nearby where I live. She is the most amazing mango tree. Her large textured branches reach high into the sky from a knotted trunk that would take six, maybe even eight people holding their arms spread out around her circumference to actually touch each other like she is so big. The birds sat in her branches to herald the rising sun and staghorns littered her mighty branches. Honestly, the branches were bigger than many, many trees. And the mangoes, when they fell, fed the bush turkeys, doves and other critters for tens of decades. Like She was really an old tree. On one delightful morning, for example, there were five kookaburras sitting in a line along an almost horizontal branch. The cacophony of their laughter was a grand way to start the day. Just, just beautiful. And as, and as it was for me too, <laughs> Mother Mango Tree has provided light and heat shelter to several houses in the neighbourhood, including our own. And for more than 120 years, she stood outside the house where I live that was originally an old Queensland farmhouse on a pineapple farm. Um, with some mango trees around the edges of the plantation area. The north-facing hill that was a home for all these years has just two old mango trees left, one of whom was close by to Mother Mango Tree and is deeply impacted by her loss. This sister mango has grown over the years to avoid overcrowding her relative <laughs> and now is alone on this part of the hill. 
Several weeks ago, during a heavy rainstorm, in the middle of the night, a mother mango tree came crashing down. It was the most frightening, loud noise that made our place shudder. When I looked out the back door, she was gone. It was desperately shocking, gone, like, because she'd fallen down the hill out of sight, could not see her at all. It was just devastating. She had been slowly dying due to some fungal infection for many years, but she was still majestic and a really important part of the landscape and my world. I feel great sadness, yet more than that, deep gratitude that she was able to fall when she was ready on her own terms and that she didn't hurt anyone. Definitely squashed the boundary fence, though. <laughs> I mention this to you as it heightens even further my, uh, my awareness of how precious Mother Nature is in my life. I've considered Mother Mango Tree one of my closest friends for the 10 years I've lived here. I know all of who nature is matters to other people, other animals and other beings. But who notices that she's gone? Now the tree surgeons have turned her into mulch. That's another story of feeling deeply for her. The loss of Mother Mango Tree colours the sensibility with which I write this chapter. On Mother Nature is speaking, but who's listening? It gives me a greater urgency to share with you my lifelong journey of connection with and sometimes disconnection from nature and how I owe my life and well-being to her. There was a deafening silence after Mother Mango Tree fell, but nature is speaking and I'm trying to hear her messages. Okay, so that's that's the kind of where I was at when I started to put together this podcast and some parallel writing I'm doing. As I was saying at the beginning, it's a it's a big topic, and I, I so I focus it in a way that is part of my understanding and connection, and and so therefore I focus focus on um, my story of how I'm aware of the mining industry, the extractive mining industry in Australia, and the pollution and environmental degradation, but also social impacts um, of natural mining, what's called natural resources mining in Australia. Um, I tend not to focus so much in this this, uh, podcast on the impacts on people, but try to keep the focus more to Mother Nature, the environment, ecosystems. My background of growing up in a mining town and being involved in the small town of Yarloop in Western Australia's struggle with our coal world alumina, which is a multinational mining company, for more than 20 years of my career, have kept me closely connected to the impact of mining on people and places. The other reason I want to focus on mining is because the scale and impact of mining operations in Australia is of such a magnitude. It threatens the sovereignty of First Nation people's rightful claims to live on and protect their homelands. For me at this time, this is the most important example of the socio-cultural environmental impacts, so <laughs> running all that together, of mining just uh, and the undeclared trade-off that is occurring for a core element of Australia's economic prosperity. There are many threads to my story of experiencing the violence is committed against the environment, 
sharing them with you here will provide a rational source of why I'm focusing on the mining industry and its impact on the environment. I was born in one of the most isolated and most beautifully wild places in the world. I didn't see it that way, mind you, for many years, though. Such was the stigma of anyone connected with Queenstown in Tasmania. No one ever owned up to coming from Queenstown, which was nothing more in terms of its built environment than a poor quality shanty town of miners' huts and pubs to service the workers. The tiny place on the southwest edge of Tasmania drew tourists because of its denuded local hills in a landscape that was otherwise rich and dense forest. These hills were stripped of all vegetation due to the pollution from the copper mine. Some years later, after the mine closed down, this is a strange irony, really, the vegetation started to regrow, but this created quite a dilemma for the local authorities as it threatened the tourism industry. Queenstown borders uh, one of Australia's most important wilderness areas that covers the southwest corner of the island and has world heritage protection. The Franklin River runs through the area and remains one of the last wild rivers in Australia, thanks to a major protest to protect it in the 1970s. My dad was a miner at the local copper mine in Queenstown. He took the job of farming the land without owning it, he took this job as farming the land, sorry, as farming the land without owning it was no longer financially viable for his young family. So his background was a, um, a dairy and small crops farmer, but he ended up working in the, in the copper mine in Queenstown. When I was only three or four, my parents um, left Queenstown and moved us from one farm to the next, <clears throat> where Dad did labouring work. My childhood during primary school was one of constant moves as work dried up or as accommodation was hard to come by as the family grew to seven of us kids. With so many mouths to feed, it was hard for my dad to find a job that paid enough. It took me some time to realise this, but it must have been a survival decision my dad and mum made to move to the small mining town of Georgetown in northern, northern Tasmania when I was about eight. And it was in this town several years later, my little sister joined the family. Then there were 10 of us in this small, I say small, housing commission house with my dad working at the very big aluminium smelter just a little way out of town. Smelter was called Kamalko and was my introduction to the insidious impact of mining and the misery of knowing that it was saving our lives and the lives of many others in the town. As a child, it seemed like that my dad was always at work or we were being shushed and quietened by mum, who was on constant edge trying to keep us quiet while dad got some sleep after working shifts. Unfortunately, there was no one, there was one other place uh, dad frequented, and that was the local pub. It was conveniently located on the road to home. He and his mates would often call in the pub for what they referred to as a few quick beers. Understandable after working long hours, tapping the extremely hot furnaces where the alumina powder was literally melted into aluminium at ultra-high temperatures. It's very, high, very hard, very dangerous work. 
and the workers had to rely on each other. Thus, the mateship ties came to compete with family obligations. If Dad wasn't home and within half an hour of finishing work, we braced for what he would be as each hour passed and how he would be, increasingly fearful that he would come home exhausted and angry and spread his misery all around us. There was a cost on many levels in being part of a mining town and being reliant on a multinational mining company for our survival. My father developed a serious cough that filled the house every day and caused him so much discomfort. It sounded as though he was coughing his heart out. He would shower before coming home from work, but would still have traces of black soot-like substance, black soot-like soot like substance, that's really hard to say, <laughs> all over him. This this black soot substance was matched by the constant need to wash the outside of the house as it too became blackened with the same soot from the smelter. Some of the workers, including my dad, tried to get Kamalko to take responsibility for their poor health, but he was dispatched as not eligible to be compensated because he was a smoker. This was my first awareness of the callousness of mining companies when dollars are involved. Black lung disease or pneumosonius is a recognised industrial health issue nowadays. It it is less prevalent but not entirely absent in Australia and and Australia and America, but remains life-threatening in many other mining countries um, who mine coal, such as China, due to the poorer work safety laws. My dad worked for Alcoa until we were all grown up, and he died in his 70s from undiagnosed cancer of the lungs. He was not the first, and many have followed, who have since given up their lives to work in a soul-destroying job to raise their families. A brother, brother-in-law, and currently a nephew of mine work at aluminium smelters or adjacent steel smelters owned by Rio Tinto in Tasmania. Another nephew works at a mine site in Queensland. Many families have loved ones who or know someone who works in a mine. For most workers, the wages are better than they could get anywhere else. The conditions vary but could be dangerous and soul-destroyingly hard work, especially for the underground mines. Some employees have high-status jobs in mine management, construction, maintenance, troubleshooting of equipment failures. Whole towns are structured around and almost totally reliant upon a mine or a number of mines and their upstream processing plans. Santini 2022 argues that with as many as 1,000 mines closing in Western Australia over the next two decades, just just imagine how many mines there are in Australia. Think about that. There's 1,000 closing in Western Australia in the next two decades. There needs to be consideration given to the surrounding towns and environments. This is just one aspect of the impact of mining. So this person writes, these towns are out of sight and out of mind. Without continuous planning, nearby settlements become ghost towns and mine sites become potentially toxic moonscapes posing danger to human and animal life. That's a very powerful quote and devastating to dwell on for too long. 
Other towns near mines then literally die when the mines open or expand, as has been the case with Yarloop, and some die before the mine has even started its operations. There's a little town in southwestern Western Australia when I was living there um, that was gearing up for a mine to open and new employees were coming to this tiny little town um, and then international market conditions changed and they just didn't proceed with the mine and the town and the people who had moved there were all just left um, with no prospects of work or income for the town. My hometown of Georgetown um, has survived over the decades since I lived there, partly helped by being located close to the beaches just north of the town and some new residential development, as it's only 30 minutes from a small capital city of Launceston. The town and many of its people remain heavily dependent on the two nearby smelters, which continue to operate despite being quite old industrial complexes. So my early life experiences have led me to be ongoingly interested in everything to do with mining and its impacts on people, towns and landscapes, as you can imagine. As I became aware of other towns and families having similar or worse experiences of adverse impacts, I would reflect again on my hometown. It took me some time, nevertheless, to link up my father coming home with traces of black soot on his face, with the contamination on the house, with the dieback of sections of the bushland, sur bushland surrounding the smelters and town, and with the high levels of asthma and other lung issues in the town. To this day, very little is known about the health and other impacts of the smelters on the town, its people and animals. This is no cause for taking comfort that everything is okay. In my 20s, I moved to the mainland for work and for quite a long period of time was living in coastal areas of southeast Queensland and wasn't directly aware of mining operations. I remember the jolt, though, that I got when I saw the movie Aaron Brockovich in 2000. Alarm bells rang in my head. There was something terribly familiar with the dramatised account of an actual small town of Hinckley in the USA and my hometown and the town of my birth. The film was based, as you might recall, on the true story of the effort involved in holding Pacific Gas and Electric legally accountable for drinking water contamination in the town. The company used chromium-6, a known cancer-causing metal, to stop the corrosion of its cooling towers. The wastewater from the cooling towers was stored in unlined ponds. Use of ponds in this situation is quite misleading. Unlined ponds and the chemical leached into the groundwater supplying the town. Despite a compensation settlement by the company in 1996, that's decades later, and decades later now, the remaining re residents have no definitive answers as to the safety or otherwise of their drinking water. Hinkley's become a ghost town as people sold up to the company and moved away and stigma for the town collapsed property values and stalled the town's growth. The health impacts are inconclusive, but this does little to assuage the fears of the remaining residents. As a reporter wrote in 2013, Steinberg wrote, Hinkley, no Hollywood ending for a town plagued by toxic water. 
On seeing the movie and knowing it was based on a true story, I became worried again for Australian mining towns and my hometown, where many of my family still lived. My father died suddenly around this time, and we only found out then that his body was riddled with cancer, with it mainly located in his lungs. We rarely speak about this as a family, but we all know the cancer was caused by working at Kamalka all those years. Well, I didn't research what was actually happening in Hinkley when I saw the movie in the early 2000s, and only in recent years have sought out information about how the town has fared. I knew even when I saw the movie that this was a story repeating itself across Australia and around the world. By this time, I was living in the southwest area of Western Australia and had little knowledge of what was happening in terms of mining. I was raising my daughter in a small university town, Bunbury, by the beach. Very beautiful. And one of the beaches in the bay was frequented by dolphins. Totally magic. A pristine, beautiful, family-friendly place. Yes. <laughs> as long as I didn't look at the stockpile of wood chips adjacent to the dolphin beach. Honestly, the juxtaposition is still very, very clear in my mind. It was soon to be shocked to learn that Bunbury Port was a major facility for loading alumina from two alumina refineries not too far north over by the Darling Ranges. In the year after my dad died, 2002, the stars aligned, I'm talking in a kind of professional sense here, when I became aware of our coal world alumina asking the university where I worked if they had some researchers who could come help them with a community problem. As a social work academic, I might not have heard of their approach, but for the fact that I had joined the university's Regional Sustainability Research Centre, which received Alcoa's request. It was a hot potato situation and no one else rushed to pick it up. Alcoa had hit the national headlines with some locals from the town adjacent to the Illumina refinery, including Yarraloop, raising their concerns of health impacts from air and sound pollution. There's very little upfront information about what Alcoa wanted the university to research, but it seemed to be about their deteriorating public relations with their communities. I'd previously done industry research and help with training packages for people at, at steel smelter and evaluation such as a passenger ferry service. So I had a bit of a sense of how to work with big companies. Alcoa asked for a brief pitch of what could be offered and a costing for this. They called it a consultation. We understood it to be um, participatory action research. I stepped forward and was successful in gaining a major funded research project to address some multifaceted issues. I remember being quite terrified about what I was getting into. However, I also remember thinking that maybe for the impact of towns, I could make a contribution because I had not been able to make one in my hometown of Georgetown. I had lived near an aluminium smelter growing up, but this was a major industrial complex. Um, up at Yarloop, not far from Bunbury. As I came to learn on what had once been a small rural town of Wagerup, the whole, this enormous industrial complex actually was located in this very beautiful rural area, um, southwest, southeast, sorry, of the capital city of Perth. 
When I say the stars aligned for me with this opportunity, it was definitely a career-shaping experience for all the unhappy reasons that I'm sharing with you, and a major learning stakeholders to find fair and negotiated ways to settle conflicts when there's such major power differences, such big vested interests. That Alcoa was paying the university seemed appropriate to me. That caused the problems. <laughs> Some community people didn't quite, didn't ever really trust myself and the research team I put together, and I can't say I'll blame them. In the end, Alcoa didn't trust us either when they perceived we had sided with the community around some of their grievances. In fact, in our minds and in every action we took, we were on the side of justice and were trying to facilitate the parties at the dialogue table. I won't go into the fine details of what the, the production of Illumina looks like um, other than to say it is gained from cutting down old-growth um, precious forests in the Darling Ranges um, to source bauxite, which is a rock. Um, and that rock is, through a very complicated process, turned into a white powder called alumina. So this little town of Yaloop uh, is one of many down um, an internal um, highway, it's called the Southwest Highway, that runs from Perth to the south coast of Western Australia and runs parallel to the west coast inland and along along the Darling, the base of the Darling Ranges, which also runs approximately from Perth City to the, to the south coast. So along, all along this now quite settled area, uh, are these teeny little towns and Wager Up was the town that historically was a, a, one of the little local farming towns that Alcoa eventually bought all the land of and, and situated their complex on, as I was saying, Yaluk was right next to a Wager Up, less than two kilometres away. Um, then other towns are dotted down this highway, um, mostly small crops um, and dairy farming, but not only, there's some um, cattle farming for their meat as well. So it's quite a productive agricultural area after settlement by white settlers. Um, um, and so it does involve a complex history of disposition of the local Noongar First Nation people who are currently struggling for their land rights in that whole area. So, so Yaloop is a town. Was a town when we went there in the early two thousands of about six hundred people. It had quite a lot of, well, it had a very big history because it was central to the timber industry many decades ago, and has an old, had an old museum that had all the relics of the timber industry, incredibly big locomotive trains because the timber was often carted by trains, um, and just very precious building, very old wooden building, very precious, and also little streets in the town of these very beautifully maintained wooden cottages that were the timber workers' cottages. Um, and it also had a local hospital and a pub and was very active community, lots of sporting and children-focused activities, as you would expect in any small town. Um, so you know, it it was a it was a very beautiful area, um, 
And initially when Alcoa came to town, as the locals say, people were not too worried. But things changed in the late 1990s prior to us getting there. I'm just, so it's really hard to tell a story briefly without saying everything, but I'm just going to make some choices about what I say at the moment about um, what happened in Yalu. I was given a brief by Alcoa about what they expected, and as you might agree, uh, might guess, they portrayed themselves as the victim being held to ransom by rednecks, and I've got rednecks in little parentheses here, in the community. Well, I've lived in towns and with so-called rednecks, referring to hot-headed, loud-mouthed, usually, but not only, men who work in mines and other labouring jobs. One thing I knew was that in all their bluster, there was nearly always some truth in what they were saying. I explained to Alcoa that the research would endeavour to build a dialogue, that is a conversation, a supported conversation, between the local communities and Alcoa to problem-solve the issues, thereby avoiding media reports that were damaging to Alcoa's reputation. Initially, personnel I worked with at Alcoa were adamant that their workers had no problem with them. It was just the local residents stirring up trouble of concern around their health and impact on their farms and animals. It was clear very fast at the meeting that many of um, so 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 sorry. So what we did was got a. It can't be me trying to convince Alcoa management that the community don't agree with them that there are no problems. So they, um, it's to their credit that they were definitely under pressure. Management agreed to a meeting between the senior local senior Alcoa staff and workers from their refinery and their mine site. We started with an. We started the meeting uh, with quite a lot of apprehension, but it was absolutely incredible how the workers spoke up. And, you know, these are people working and dependent on Alcoa speaking up and criticising the company managers. It's very clear, very fast, that the meeting, um, oh, at, the, at the meeting, that many of the workers, especially those who lived in Yalu, were very concerned about pollution impacts and were able to give individual stories of their health concerns. One worker who had become a long-term activist and community leader told Alcoa they should come out from behind the dollar signs and show their face to people. Some workers raised the very sensitive issue of experiencing multiple chemical sensitivity and other health issues due to where they worked in the refinery. So this was another aspect that was running alongside the community-based concerns that workers within the refinery were experiencing health issues. So this was an active issue at the time we had that very first meeting with Alcoa and the community. Um, and the workers were eventually compensated, but it, it actually the issue had really blown apart by then. But it was a perceived slowness to respond by Alcoa that led to increasing alarm as workers talked about their health issues in their communities. After this first meeting with our research team, Alcoa was certainly then placed in a position where they had to allow a fuller picture to emerge of how locals were impacted. What followed was nearly two years of research that was action-oriented and participatory between Alcoa Wadrup and Yarloop and other local residents. Just briefly, we did, among other things, we did look weekly, we ran weekly public meetings 
between Alcoran community members to discuss and try and problem solve many of the interrelated problems of the townspeople. There were several active resident action groups and a medical practitioners forum working on the health and source of public concerns. We came alongside these important groups and tended to focus on Alcoa's unfair land management plan, which set the rules for properties that they wanted to buy um, with an amount, with an added amount as a resettlement payment. This became a major destabilising practice as many people sold to Alcoa, many um, leaving because of fears of um, stigma against their town, but also around their health and their concern for their children. And of course, as some people left, more people became worried and started leaving. It caused a massive ex- unexpected exodus from the town, all the while Alcoa not willing to admit that there was any problem. This was all to try and create um, a, a buffer, what the locals called a buffer around the industrial site that was not originally properly constituted and gazetted by the government. Of course, you know, there's all sorts of aspects to the story and Alcoa would not accept that they were offering to buy the properties because of the health issues that were now more or less recognised as spread throughout the locality. Health issues such as nosebleeds, headaches, respiratory illnesses and chemical sensitivity, however bad enough, were exacerbated when um, Alcoa in the late 1990s installed a liquor burner and look really all of this becomes quite complicated because it's it's a very the the conversion of raw bauxite to alumina is a very complex process and a liquor burner is not in all alumina refineries um, but it was installed in um, this refinery in the late 1990s and it was to try and get better quality better purity of alumina from the bauxite. Um, the trouble was, this is contentious, of course, as so much of what I'm saying is that the process of, of trying to do more refining the bauxite involved chemicals that are recognised, at least in some quarters, as dangerous. Um, and this is, this is when locals started to notice really um, concerns around their health so, so it's it's a big story, um, and what I and and there was a parliamentary inquiry that we were able to have an influence around in two thousand and four, but you know the whole town was under extreme pressure and loss, and uh, Alcoa was willing to go to a certain extent to try and hear people, but not to take the actual full responsibility for what happened. So. I won't further describe what we did. I'm happy to talk about it in other spaces at other times, and we've written, my colleagues and I, who were involved in that original research and subsequent research, have written about it. Um, And you might be interested in um, the 2010 book that I wrote with Martin Brutner called Under Corporate Skies, A Struggle Between People, Place and Profit. That book is is helpful for uh, an account uh, of what local people and also people from Alcoa and people from the government, how they understood the issue and how we were trying to work to build dialogue across these unequal interest groups in terms of power and ability to influence the government. Okay, so what I want to do is just with enough, hopefully enough of that introduction to what was happening, um, 
to to talk a little bit about the, the way the pollution looks um, and like what what that is and what that does to the environment, um, and so just placing a little bit to a side impact on people and animals for now. I want to just mention two sources of contamination of the environment, given that this is our main focus today. And there, there is an ongoing issue still around noise pollution, but I'm, I'm not being contained in the industrial complex, but I'm not mentioning that at the moment. So the, the most contentious equipment, I've already mentioned about the liquor burner, um, but what I haven't mentioned are some other less obvious but really very troubling parts of the operations. And these are called the mud lakes and the language of mud and lakes can be very misleading. Um, so what, what happens is all the waste product from the operations are placed into the mud lakes um, and these, it's contentious, but the locals and some scientists and other experts are, are very concerned about the nature of these mud lakes. And if you just let the echo of the Hinkley example stay in your mind here. Okay, so these mud lakes, back even when I was involved in the early 2000s, covered 1,500 acres, that's 607 hectares, to accommodate 5 million metric tonnes per annum of toxic waste from the oper refinery operations. Like the numbers or the size of the waste product um, is deeply troubling. So the worry is, among many things, is the leaching from the plastic lining of the ponds where wastewater is fed from the refinery. And, and it's unknown. Residents told me they were worried about the mud lakes were le leaking and contaminating the groundwater. The site manager admitted to me that the mud lakes were a major concern for her management team. I became personally aware of the serious threat posed by these wastelands, which cover what was once prime agricultural land, when one of my research colleagues uh, had extreme difficulty breathing one day when we were at Yalu. Airborne red dust, so I'm just going to place dust in parentheses again, um, from the insufficiently watered down mud lakes, covered the town and impacted many people's breathing and health. Alcoa referred to it as, again in parentheses, a dust excursion, which would have been funny if it wasn't so awful and serious. The call toxic waste, dust, and referred to it as going on an excursion is to underplay the health and other risks involved for anyone and anything in its path. The locals made a joke about it, but it wasn't a happy joke. We subsequently had to provide an account of the experience to the government who fined our coal for the bridge of its refinery footprint. Just to say, sometimes what happens to, to towns and landscapes close to these large industrial complex can become compounded by natural disasters in a way that is so disturbing and, and somehow comes to Further advantage, the mining company at the expense of the town is just 
a level of misery that I want to briefly share with you. So what happened, and you may have, some of you may have seen it in the news, in 2016, a devastating bushfire that started in the hills in the Darling Ranges to the east of the Waidrup Refinery and Yahoo spread at lightning speed on this extremely hot day um, and demolished almost all of the town of Yaluk. Two people died and the old museum, guest house, hospital, pub, town hall, a shop, attached dwelling and many, many dwellings in the order of 160 were destroyed. The museum was flattened and all the historical records and train engines made of steel were destroyed behind the museum. There was a narrow winding road that I often used to walk along with tiny single room wooden cottages lining its edges. It was called Happy Valley. Nothing survived in Happy Valley. The flora and fauna was also heavily impacted in the local area and many farmers lost farm animals, infrastructure, pets, crops and fruit trees. Soon after, I flew to Western Australia and went to the town that was closed due to fears of asbestos in many of the destroyed homes. My long-term colleagues were shattered as they showed me around their beloved town. The scale of the loss for such a small town was almost total. One of my colleagues and his partner had lost their house, and my other colleague's house narrowly escaped, but the surrounding bushland was blackened. His mother's home had, that had been sold to alcohol was destroyed. The old letterbox at the front gate showed the ferocity of the fire. It was crumpled and black. Another colleague almost lost his life, fighting to save his home and two of Alcoa's properties. One of the entry roads to the town from the southwest highway had tall stands of gum trees lining both sides of the road, a truly majestic sight, all badly burned as was the highly valued wetlands and bush around the town. Now you may be thinking this is a very sad story and not that strange in Australia, but there is more of it. This is where I want to come to the troubling dimension of this tragedy that reflected, really, it just kept compounding the long-term struggle, unequal struggle um, by Yahoo for protection by the government from the impact of coal wager some of the residents who were home when the fire hit later provided evidence to a parliamentary inquiry that no warning was given to the townspeople that the local fire brigade was told to bypass Yalu and go directly to the refinery, that there was no water left for locals and there was no help given until it was too late. The media showed the Premier of Western Australia saying that a cloud now hung over your loop. There was no commitment to rebuild the town. Our Corrupt Wager Up made no public announcement of concern for your loop in the days after the fire. Locals were outraged when they learned that all the fire response resources were ordered to go to Alcoa, presumably because there were grave fears of the fire breaching the refinery perimeters. Some of the workers later told the media that they were ordered to return to work to help protect the refinery while their own homes and families were at risk. Martin Bruckner, who I work with in that book I mentioned, and I help CAPS, and CAPS is the continuing incredible local community activist group, Community Alliance for Positive Solutions. Um, we, we've kept a relationship with, with this group to try and help the long-term impacts of the town. 
Anyway, we worked at the time of the fire in 2016 to put together a statement of the troubling political context in which the fire occurred. This is what I'm saying, the compounding misery um, caused by the fire. The chairperson for the inquiry into the government's response to the fire said it was beyond the scope of the terms of the inquiry to consider the historical and political issues, but we were really clear there was a, a very direct link but he was willing to read the statement and be aware of it. Nevertheless, the, com- the inquiry found that the government had not responded adequately to the fire disaster, but this left unaddressed how it could be that there was no regional fire and other disasters management plan in place, given the presence of a major industrial complex in close proximity to towns and homes. How was it that the water was prioritised for saving Alcoa while Yarloop was left literally to burn? My CAPS colleagues said they were not surprised and said it's always been the case that Alcoa is more advantaged no matter what happens and Yarloop is always worse off. After the fire, for example, Alcoa no longer needed to buy houses And if they did, the value had plummeted and the property they had previously purchased that were destroyed, properties they had previously purchased that were destroyed, saved our core, demolishing them. To this day, some 20 years later from when I first met uh, some local people in the Yarloop area, I hold an abiding interest in the local activist work in trying to hold the company and the state government of Western Australia accountable the many impacts of the mining operations. Just to say, um, CAPS continues to provide independent research to challenge the conditions of Alcoa's licence to operate and provides expert advice to various departments of the state government. A truly impressive commitment of local people trying to educate and hold its own government account to account to stop a complicity with a mining company with very few checks and balances. Further to my own experiences with mining, I was strongly influenced by Rachel Carson's seminal book, Silent Spring, which she wrote that in 1962. I wasn't a big reader of books growing up, as books were hard to come by in my home. We did have this very expensive set of encyclopedias that were purchased to support our education. It was my mum's one claim to something of status, and the bookshelf packed with these tombs of wisdom had pride of place near our front door for all to see. But they're not exactly the kind of book you take to bed with you for a good read. So anyway, I felt like I've spent a good part of my adult life catching up with important books that I wasn't aware of when I maybe should have been in my earlier adulthood. This was the case with Carlson's book. I can't recall how, I found, how it found its way into my hands, but I, and I suspect I didn't read it entirely, but I certainly got the message of what she was saying loud and clear. I was devastated. So began my education about the troubling impact of the human-made chemicals on Mother Nature, including humans and animals. At the time, it made me reassess my early life on dairy and small crop farms, Strange-looking large metal containers in storage sheds always seemed out of place with gardening tools and tractors. I didn't see my dad using sprays, but these containers were filled with DDT and other types of pesticides. He did not use protective clothing, as many farmers do nowadays. In the 1950s and 60s, the dangers of pesticides were not commonly known or accepted by farmers. 
I think Carlson's book, Silent Spring, still provides a very timely warning of the violences committed against Mother Nature and all beings through an intricate ecological connectivity. When written in 1962, her book is, while it was written so long ago, 60 years ago, it is disturbingly on point for many of the environmental issues, including climate change at this time. When I became aware of the what I really believe was an opportunity to work with our current local communities in the early 2000s, I already had a lived experience of being a mining town and farming daughter. Additionally, because of Carson's book, I had, to, had a beginning appreciation of how toxic chemicals can disperse through the life chain and affect everything. I also had a sense it was difficult to trace to the source where contamination might come from and to hold industry responsible for harm done. I just want to come to a little part of Carson's book to draw to a close some of my thinking around this whole concern about what's happening to Mother Nature and the environment. In her book, she writes a chapter entitled A Fable for Tomorrow. This was in 1962, remember. And I'm reading now directly from Carson's book. There is a strange blight. Then, a, let me do that again. Then a strange blight crept over the area, and everything began to change. Some evil spell had settled on the community. Mysterious maladies swept the flocks of chickens. The cattle and sheep sickened and died. Everywhere was a shadow of death. The farmers spoke of much illness among their families. In the town, the doctors had become more and more puzzled by new kinds of sickness appearing among their patients. There had been several sudden and unexplained deaths, not only among adults, but even among children, who would be stricken suddenly while at play and die within a few hours. There was a strange stillness. The birds, for example, where had they gone? Many people spoke of them, puzzled and disturbed. The feeding stations in the backyards were deserted. The few birds seen anywhere were, were moribund. They trembled violently and could not fly. It was a spring without voices. On the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens and scores of other bird voice, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and woods and marsh. In the gutters, under eaves and between shingles of the roofs, a white granular powder still showed a few patches. Some weeks before it had fallen like snow upon the roofs and the lawns, the fields and the streams. No witchcraft, no enemy action had silenced the rebirth of new life in this stricken world. The people had done it to themselves. That's the end of the quote from Carson's book. In returning to her book this year, I was gobsmacked in reading this allegory post my long-standing involvement with the Yalu people um, and their conflict with our coal world of Lumina. This was no allegory. So many of her points reflect the experiences of the town right down to the white powder on houses. In Yalu's case, from uncovered passing trains pa transporting Illumina to the port of Bunbury. 
it is profoundly disturbing but not surprising that at this time on the planet, preeminent scientists, environmental advocates and informed citizens know in their hearts the awful truths, what Al Gore called an inconvenient truth. The combined impact of factors causing climate change is captured by Carlson decades earlier when she wrote that humans have changed the course of nature's ability to create the environment to where we have acquired significant power, this is from Hearst, acquired significant power to alter the nature of our world. As you know, I'm a social worker, and while social work is far from the forefront of environmental activism as a profession, Boeto in 2019 writes um, that social workers need to recognise that humans have collectively acted as a force with geological impacts. That is a deeply troubling realisation. Science has now been able to substantiate, as we know, that in recent times, human-made buildings, infrastructure and development now outweighs the property productivity and massive nature. First Nation people and environmental activist groups around the world have been warning of environmental catastrophes, loss of biodiversity and impacts on climate change. The warnings are so dire but continue to be silenced or not heeded by the elites in business and governments. Many activists, in fact, risk or lose their lives in their efforts to protect their places and livelihoods from unsustainable development. It is definitely dangerous to challenge the vested interests who gain disproportionately from environmental degradation. Carlson had warned that the nature of the threat escalated with the use of dangerous pesticides on crops to cause a type of pollution that is largely irrecoverable. She explains that the chain of events that follow on from its use that permeates all aspects of life is largely irreversible. Her book details the pervasive, intricate spread and impacts of the chemicals, which are the little recognised partners of radiation, in changing the very nature of the world, the very nature of life itself. A little later, she writes that the dangerousness of the chemicals used so extensively might be better termed biocides, not insecticides. And I would place alongside her analysis and concern um, around the use of pesticides and insecticides in the farming industry, uh, the use of chemicals in the, in the mining industry as profoundly impacting on the environment. Just as a closing comment, because you know that's that's fairly heavy, heavy, heavy duty, and this is not this is not much better. But I just wanted to say that sometimes um, the impact can be less obvious. Like we can see the expanse of land that the mud lakes, the so-called mud lakes, um, at our coal wage drop take. We can see that, but in the moment we can't see where the microparticles that are so dangerous are seeping into the water system and into people's bodies and animals' bodies. But we can see some things, um, and we we need to be moved um, to stay aware of what's happening at the very least, to bear witness. Okay, so I just want to mention um, what's happening, still related to the Alcoa issue, um, in terms of the trees that are cut down for Alcoa to access the bauxite material to create alumina. Okay, so just just to bear with me, um, uh, because I think the visual loss of the trees 
kind of validates my concerns and the concerns many people have. So what, where, where shall I just put it? More than two decades on from the first media reports of pollution by Alcoa and my research, the small town of Yaluv is not recognisable and the whole rural area is profoundly impacted by mining operations, not only Alcoa. One of the starkest costs is the loss of Jara forests in the landscape with thin coverage of trees along the Darling Escarpment, which runs parallel to the coast from Perth to the southern coast. Recent media headlines captures the seriousness of the escalation of strip mining for the bauxite by Alcoa and another mining company, Walsley Illumina, um, with Rio Tinto seeking mining leases in the area. And the heading, this is a recent heading, said, Mines clear more trees than logging in Western Australia's threatened forests. Alcoa and Walsley have long-term mining leases over 10,000 square kilometres, which covers the northern part of the Darling Ranges, just slightly southeast of Perth City. Jakurov in 2022 explains that the 250-kilometre area is subject to such an intensive removal of habitat that it threatens the black cockatoos and mainland quokka's survival. Unfortunately, our coal world Illumina has its own start, state agreement, courtesy of the West Australian government, which protects it against federal level legislation that has been successfully used against developments that threaten endangered and other species. Our coal continues to gain at the expense of communities and landscapes. As I was saying, anyway, coming coming to um, what, how I connected with this um, wasn't only that I read that news report. Whenever I returned to Western Australia from the East Coast and have flown over the Darling Ranges, it is very concerning to see how little forest remains. I joined the forest protests in the 1990s and early 2000s to stop the logging of old-growth forests in Western Australia. And Western Australia does not log its old forests anymore. This is so important. But people maybe don't realise what mining companies have legal permission to do. Of course, the, the, the stopping of logging relates to one industry and mining is another industry. And Western Australia is a very pro-development state. There are other sources of threat to the forests which concern me to join um, concerned residents when I lived in the area, um, when urban development was coming at the cost of small corridors of chewitz trees, the other unique hardwood tree of Western Australia. At the time, a titanium mining company was seeking environmental approval to mine in the Ludlow Chewitz Forest. And it gained, which it gained at the cost in the first instance of 1,700 chewit trees. These are unique to Western Australia. They don't live anywhere else in the world. I continue to be aghast at how forests are treated as a commodity and not as beings with their own right to be. The level of threat and plans to increase the strip mining in the Darling Ranges is hard to grasp, but is a major environmental issue in 2023. West Australia's peak environmental groups 
WA Forest Alliance, the Wilderness Society and the Conservation Council of Western Australia compiled a significant report that you might like to look at called A Thousand Cups, Mining in the Northern Jarrah Forest in 2022, outlining the extremely compromised ecosystem in the Northern Jarrah Forest due to bauxite mining. They write in this report, and I'm quoting, the Jara forests of southwest of Western Australia are a key part of a global biodiversity hotspot that is under enormous cumulative pressure from a variety of sources, including native forest logging, mining, agriculture, urban development, dieback, prescribed burning and climate change. The forest is dying and disappearing, and still the mining rolls on. Does it matter? Do people in the cities know what is happening? Every forest matters on a planetary level through to the individual trees themselves level, where all non-human animals depend on it for their life. When the Chara forest in Western Australia is lost to this part of the world, it will be totally lost. The botanical name for the Chara tree is Eucalyptus marginata which can grow to a height of 50 metres with trunk widths of 3 metres. Its flowers are cone-shaped casings that burst open with a scented white flower and the jarra provides a home for bees, marsupials and birds. It was logged for its precious red hardwood timber and some are known to be over 500 years old. If you don't know about the Jarrah trees, please watch out for them by lending your support to the peak bodies, even if you live a long way away. So there we are. This is, this is some of how I'm connected to, trying to contribute to, but also, you know, in living my life, have used resources from Mother Nature. Um, and I'm wanting today to, to bring into my interest in developing a love theory, what is happening to Mother Nature and our environment as needing to be as much our concern as what is happening to people and other animals. In fact, it is an entwined concern that the love theory is needing to address. Okay, look, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to me and um, hope to have you with me again very soon. Bye now.